Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 509, Year of Hell, parts 1 and 2. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we take a great deal of time to calculate all of the possible narrative incursions in a single episode of Star Trek and see if there are any lingering counterindications of morals, meanings, and messages. This week, Year of Hell Parts 1 and 2, where Janeway and her crew are caught somewhere in time amok only to be tested time after time to get back to the future. I'll return with trivia shortly, but first here's Norman with a few notes on how to contact us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now here's John Champion with this week's Trace Elements of Temporal Trivia. All right, thank you, Norman, for this two-parter. Both episodes were written by Brandon Braga and Joe Minoski. And if you were paying attention toward the end of the last season of Voyager, you remember Kess jumping around in her own timeline in the episode before and after, in which the phrase Year of Hell is uttered by Tom Paris. In that episode, Voyager had taken a beating, and Brandon was interested in following that story thread. It was originally intended that this two-parter would bridge the end of seasons three and four, but the Scorpion story took its place. Then, for a very brief time, it was considered to make Year of Hell a season-long arc where the Krenim were returning antagonists. It was Rick Berman who put the kibosh on that idea, and hence we have a two-parter which aired in mid-November 1997. Part one is directed by Alan Croker, and part two is directed by Mike Vehar, both returning Star Trek directors. Now, with Alan, the most recent episode of Voyager that we discussed of his was Displaced. And Mike, uh, up until this point, all of his credits exist on DS9. The one that is most concurrent with this episode is Rocks and Shoals, and that aired just about a month before this episode aired. Now, we have a fun little callback to Star Trek First Contact, which was released also about a year before this episode aired, and that was also written by Brandon Braga, along then with writing partner Ron Moore. And there are a lot of other little references scattered throughout that I felt like were a lot of fun. Uh, let's see. We name-checked Titanic Disaster of 1912, Alfred Hitchcock's 1955 film To Catch a Thief, Captain William Bly, and uh, we have a made-up reference to Captain Cray, a 19th century British ship captain. I'm not saying that a British captain named Cray never existed, but there's no record of one doing anything outstanding. And the only ship that matches Chakotay's description in the pocket watch story was not under such a person's command. So you can make up your own alternate past history, I guess, for that one. Let us move on to our guest stars, again, covering both episodes here. And given the scale of the production, not too many guest stars for this two-parter. 
We have a recurring Krenim commander played by Peter Slutsker. He has shown up three times before on Star Trek, all on Next Gen and all while covered in Ferengi makeup appliances. John Lopriano as Obrist. John is best known as a soap opera performer. He's from Chicago. He teaches acting as well as performs. And you may have caught him in multiple episodes of One Life to Live, As the World Turns, and Search for Tomorrow. Uh, Just the tip of the iceberg there for his career. The only Zal we get to know is a representative played by Rick Fitz. And he may not look familiar right away under the makeup, but we gave Rick a shout out in the fifth season of Next Gen when he guest starred in the episode Violations, looking quite a bit more like his human self. We briefly meet Anorax's wife. She is played by Lise Sims, and she also has a number of soap opera credits to her name, but there are a number of additional TV and film credits in her resume. She was a series regular in the family sci-fi series Phil of the Future, And she does have one more Trek credit to her name as one of the voices in the 2001 video game Star Trek Away Team. Finally, Anorax is played by Kurtwood Smith. And what more can we say about Kurtwood Smith? We've covered his appearances in Star Trek VI as the Federation president, then on DS9 as a Cardassian in Things Past. He's one of those distinctive actors who excels in authoritative roles. And if you're like me, you probably always associate him with Robocop, in which he played Boddicker. Norman, I know that you're a fan of that 70s show. He was in that as well. I mean, obviously, he just keeps working on TV, film, and in voice roles. His time on Star Trek isn't done either. As recently as 2020, he appeared as the voice of Magistrate Klar in Lower Decks. Welcome to the Delta Quadrant. I tell you how twisted the timeline is about to get, but we don't have time for that. Prologue. Somewhere in the Delta Quadrant, a peaceful, idyllic civilization is wiped out of existence after a fearsome Krenum warship appears and fires its weapon. On board, the captain asks if the target event has been achieved, but his frustrated officer says it has not. This was a Zal colony, and the Krenum captain announces that their next target will be the Zal homeworld to erase the entire species from time itself. And this is just day one. Act one. Meanwhile on Voyager, it's time for celebration. Since Harry and Seven's new astrometric lab has opened, the improved accuracy will cut time off the trip back to Earth, and the next leg of the journey will take them through the heavily populated but friendly Zal region of space. Before you know it, Voyager is fired upon by a single low-powered Krenum ship, and its commander is insistent that they leave at once, which they don't. By day four, a Zal representative meets with Janeway to discuss the ongoing conflict, but with reassurance that they won't face any real trouble. The Zal are friends here, and the Krenum aren't a threat anymore. But sure enough, the Krenums show up again, and this time a space-time shockwave comes soon after. It envelops everything in a five-light-year radius, erasing the Zal from history. Voyager is transformed too, darkened, battle-scarred, and on the run from a much more powerful and much more threatening Krenum officer who says he'll spare the crew from execution if Janeway hands over her ship. 
Act 2. The fight is on and Voyager takes more damage from the Krenim vessel. Their only chance of survival is to take off. Fast. Back on the first Krenim warship, the officer, Abrist, reports to the commander, Anorax, that their latest incursion has been a rousing success, restoring the Krenim Imperium to 98%. The good news isn't good enough for Anorax, though who insists on some more specific goal, one that includes the restoration of the people at Kiana Prime Colony. Over the objections of a Brist, who insists that the crew has worked so hard to get them this far, that absolute perfection is unrealistic now that the Krenim are thriving and powerful again, Anorax orders him back to make more calculations for another incursion. They can do it, too, as long as it takes... Their ship is prevented from the effects of the time incursions. They can wipe out as many perceived enemies or historic events as it takes, protected there on the warship, which is creating these changes in the continuum. Fast forward another 28 days, and Voyager is still fighting off Krenim attackers. It just gets worse each time with Voyager taking on more damage. They get in a deadly shot against the Krenim, dropping torpedoes like mines, but in the skirmish... The doctor has to evacuate sickbay and all of Deck 5. Two of the evacuees don't make it as they were lagging behind just as the doctor was closing a hatch. With a moment to breathe, Janeway surveys the extensive damage to her own ready room, and Chakotay offers up a suggestion. Abandon ship. Launch escape pods at rendezvous later. Janeway is having none of it. As long as Voyager is in one piece, just like the captain's lucky teacup which is promptly smashed into bits after a new incoming Krenim attack. Act 3. It's day 47, because of course it is. Amongst the damage this time, Harry and Bellana are stuck in an elevator, biding their time until 7 of 9 sets them free. Chakotay and Tom have been working on ways to upgrade the integrity of the bulkheads, and later, 7 makes an interesting discovery. One of the Chronoton torpedoes launched by the Krenim is stuck undetonated in Voyager's hull. Meanwhile, the doctor has set up a temporary sickbay in the mess hall. The trauma of his decision to let two crew members go while protecting the others during evacuation has affected him, as he snaps at Tom Paris more than the usual bantering. And back to that chronoton torpedo, Seven is scanning it, but Tuvok warns that it can explode at any moment. Just as he pulls him to safety, and directs a force field, Seven announces that she has determined the temporal variants, handy as they try to develop shielding against Krenim weapons. But sure enough, the warhead does explode, sending a fireball down the Jeffrey's tube toward them. Act 4. Now it's day 65, and wow, is Voyager in bad shape. Many systems are offline, including replicators. Seven decks are uninhabitable. Oh, it also happens to be Captain Janeway's birthday— Chakotay got her a replicated antique pocket watch, which Janeway insists he returns back into the replicator it came from to be reconstituted into something more useful. In his quarters, it is apparent that Tuvok was blinded in the explosion in the Jeffrey's tube. Seven of Nine arrives to help him prepare for his day. She has a breakthrough with matching their shields to the temporal variants of the Krenim torpedoes, and not a moment too soon. More enemy vessels close in and open fire on Voyager, but the shields hold. When Janeway hails her attackers, they ignore her. Elsewhere, Anorax has pointed his weapon to a new target, the Garanor homeworld. 
When it fires, erasing the Garador from history, a temporal shockwave radiates outward. That shockwave merely passes over Voyager's new temporal shielding, but it doesn't spare the Krenum warship that was in pursuit. It is now transformed into something smaller, less powerful. In the affected timeline, the Krenum Imperium is decimated, reverted to a pre-warp state, and that, according to Obris's readings, is because of an alien ship, Voyager. Anorax sets the order to find them. Act 5. It's five days later. Seven of Nine has loaded up the data from Krenum's space that they took before, and the more recent readings after the last temporal shockwave to run a comparison in the astrometrics lab. The results are quite revealing. The Krenum Imperium was a massive region of nearly 900 planets and thousands of warp-capable ships. After the shockwave, quite the opposite. And Voyager seems to have been protected from the temporal changes by the new shielding. But they are also clued into the erasure of the Garonor and how this has affected history. As if on cue, Anorak shows up in his massive weapon ship and immediately beams away Chakotay and Tom Paris as prisoners. Janeway's got his number, and Anorax is apologetic about now having to erase Voyager from the timeline, but it's all in support of helping the millions of Krenum who will be restored. When Anorax aims his weapon on Voyager, the temporal shields start to fail, leaving Janeway with only one choice, to risk tearing her ship apart by jumping to warp. Now on day 73, Janeway addresses her crew with the decision she was loath to make. Everyone but the senior staff are to abandon ship through the escape pods and shuttles, then one day Voyager will be back for them. Part 2 It's day 133, and Voyager is hiding out in a nebula. Janeway and Harry Kim do their best to contain a gas leak, but both are overcome. A little while later, the doctor is chasing a stressed Janeway around the bridge, urging her to take care of herself after scorching her lungs. She won't do it, though. Too much to do, and only a handful of crew on board. Coughing through it, Janeway demands a shot of Triox to get back to work. Act 6. Anorax does his best to reason with Chakotay and Tom, explaining that the power of his ship could not only restore Voyager, but the timeline along with it. He might even be able to get them closer to home. He just needs their cooperation. And over a sumptuous feast of rare delicacies from civilizations erased from time, it becomes clear that Voyager has eluded him. Tom refuses to cooperate, but Chakotay may just hear him out. Back on Voyager, Neelix has done his best to prepare some libations for the remaining crew. It's not good. Despite numerous repairs still needed, Janeway is determined to ship out of the nebula the next morning, and Seven raises her objection. That goes nowhere, and Tuvok seizes the teachable moment to remind Seven that the captain is always right. Act 7 Chakotay, having studied Anorax's calculations, explains how Voyager avoided a comet some months ago, which led them into Krenum space. Easy solution, right? Eliminate the comet from the space-time continuum, and Voyager never enters Krenum space. Problem solved. But Anorax educates Chakotay on the long-term effects of messing with the timeline. In a simulation, he points out that billions of years ago, the comet helped life form on a planet, 
which led to 8,000 civilizations in that region of space. Erase the comet. Erase all of those as a side effect. Back to the drawing board. Anorax explains that he learned that lesson the hard way. His first deployment of the weapon erased the greatest enemy of the Kretum, the Rilnar. But it also allowed a pathogen to wipe out millions of Kretum who would have survived with immunity from the Rilnar genome. So yeah, every little change counts. And that has left an incredible burden on Anorax and his crew who have been chasing their preferred outcome for two centuries. But like the Voyager crew facing incredible odds to get home... Anorax carries on. Now Anorax just needs Chakotay's help. It's day 180, and a badly beat-up Voyager encounters a micro-meteoroid field. The deflectors are offline, making every impact a serious threat. Janeway herself goes to a damaged, fire-engulfed part of the ship to manually activate the deflector, which works, but leaves her badly burned in the process. After the doctor does his best to care for her burns, he pleads with Janeway again to step back to stay under his care for a while longer since she has been behaving erratically, recklessly. If she refuses, he can, and does, use his authority as CMO to relieve her of command. And enforce it how exactly? They're on a ship with seven other people. Janeway refuses the order unless the doctor holds her to it at the point of a phaser, and she'll face a court-martial if they get back home. Act 8. Day 207 feels a lot like the other days. Janeway and Neelix make their way through corridors, surveying more damage, and this time they come across Chakotay's quarters. It's a wreck, too. And Janeway finds the pocket watch he was supposed to have disposed of five months prior. Honoring her friend, though, she keeps it and wears it on her waist. Back on Anorax's ship, Tom has made a breakthrough. He has befriended Obrist, who seems a lot less inclined to follow Anorax than maybe he was 200 years ago. What's more, Tom has learned that the temporal core powering their weapon is protected by very weak shields. Take those offline and the whole system could be stopped. But Chakotay is less inclined to encourage a mutiny just yet. He thinks he can use Anorax's techniques to get the Krenum what they want and save Voyager 2. So they need to lay low, and that's in order. They can't debate the point much longer, though. In a moment of inspiration, Anorax has charged his weapon again for a temporal incursion. This time, the target will assuredly restore the Krenum Imperium to 52%, and Chakotay asks him to reconsider. Anorax fires anyway, and Tom quietly tells his friend that if he doesn't do anything about this maniac that Tom will. Act 9. Chakotay confronts Anorax. The last incursion was another act of genocide, like so many others, but he is unmoved. Anorax sees the stakes as much bigger, but also more personal. He lost his wife on Kiana Prime, and no adjustment of the timeline since has brought her back. He has just one thing to remember her by, a lock of her red hair stored in a glass case on his desk, so he'll keep fighting against time until he has corrected his mistake and gets her and his own future back. Later, Tom confronts Chakotay. Anorax is mad, and they have to fight back. 
they will have help in Obris getting access to a communications array. That means coordinating with Voyager and hoping Janeway can show up with some firepower. Chakotay gives Tom the go-ahead to get to work. Day 226. The message from Tom gets through and Janeway has called in some reinforcements to help her out. They'll head out 50 light-years to intercept the Krenum weapon ship and aim for the temporal core once Tom gets its shields offline. The Voyager crew will split up among the alien vessels, while Janeway stays behind on Voyager to coordinate the attack. Plus, it's a personal thing. Even if Tuvok doesn't get it, she has an emotional attachment to the ship that they've called home. The two friends say goodbye, and that leaves Janeway alone on her bridge. Act 10. Day 257. Janeway's makeshift armada arrives close to Anorax's weapon ship. Immediately, Anorax brings the weapon online and wipes out two of the attackers. But at the same time, Obris has transmitted vital information about the temporal core to Tom, who passes it along to Janeway. When Anorax calls for another shot, Obris brings the weapon offline, exposing their ship in the normal space-time continuum. Tom and Chakotay are beamed back to safety on one of the other ships, and while Voyager is taking on extreme damage, Janeway gives the order for all vessels to lower their temporal shielding. Without control of weapons, she plans to ram Voyager into the temporal core and hopefully wipe it from history as well. Sensing what is to come, Anorax runs into his ready room, only to see the container holding the lock of hair from his wife crash to the floor, then the lock disappears. As Voyager plunges through a massive explosion, then a shockwave emanates from where the ship was. Then all is quiet. Day 1. Voyager enters an unremarkable section of space, ready to activate the new astrometrics lab. They're hailed by a surly but non-threatening Krenum officer advising Voyager to stay out of disputed space, which they will. Elsewhere, as the sun rises on a quiet world, a red-haired woman asks her busy husband to join her for breakfast. It's Anorax, setting aside a few more calculations in order to spend some time with his wife. The end. That was a fantastic recap, John. And this isn't in regards to your recap, but I have to believe, because you broke down two parts, yes. that that was the breakdown from hell. <laughs> you know what? I, it, my I, it, tip of the hat to Brennan and Joe for writing a script that, even though it is long, it is still, as we like to say on this show, toy. Like a tiger. Like a tiger. It, it, it is a, uh, it's a show that just moves. I feel like there aren't any wasted scenes. And you could really condense that down into just what is essential to get across the plot. And now it's our job to, well, have a little fun and then discuss the heavy stuff. So <laughs> away we go. I was actually uh, really distracted by the lovely... I guess it would be the Krenim versions of Elkars because mm. all the diagrams and the controls and the background oh, yeah. of the Krenim ship, they all had these wonderful fluidic lines that were running through the graphics. And I thought that was really neat as if we were supposed to interpret those as being lines of time yes. that were all converging to see where all of the intersections were. I thought it was so clever and very cool looking. Uh, also would make a great diagram for my dream model train layout. So... 
of yeah, course. Yeah, all of that was super cool. Big day on Voyager, huge day on Voyager with the new Astrometrics Lab opening, and yet there's only nine people there. <laughs> they're, they're just... I have a logical explanation for okay. that. Okay, which is? It's the call sheet of the day. John. Oh, call sheet of the day. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you for immediately grounding that. Um, I also, very interesting that this lab is now 10 times more accurate, which makes me wonder, what were they doing before? <laughs> One of the things I also loved in that scene is how Janeway started that scene with space, because you thought that she was going to go into the final frontier, yes! but then she says yes. space, the great unknown. But I like the fact that we were teased by that because I think since... TNG, we haven't had a narration voiceover yeah. of the opening credits. Yeah. So, you know, not in Deep Space Nine and not in Voyager or, or other shows. So it's nice to have at least had a sample yeah. of what that could have sounded like. Yep. It was an appropriate little bit of drama, a little, little bit of like inside nod to the fans. I mm -hmm. thought that was cool. And of course, you know, uh, uh, kudos to Bob Picardo always bringing it. The Doctor's speech is wonderful. <laughs> it, it's it's yeah. great. Yeah. Later on, when the, the Krenim wave hit and things changed and uh, we saw our first casualty on the bridge, is it me or did like the entire like crew on the bridge just kind of gloss over the fact that they had a dead crewman lying on the ground? <laughs> oh my God, you're right. I mean, I know for exposition's sake that you have to keep moving along, right. but we've seen on occasion where kind of like lesser uh, instances of, have caused crewmen to die on Voyager where they took a little bit more time to actually acknowledge yeah. that. But then, in like in the next scene after like the Act One, Act Two transition, is that crewman still there? I know, right? I think she'll be much more upset about her teacup a little later. You know. By the way, Space Time Shockwave—that is my Parliament tribute band. Just want to go ahead and claim that. And on the Voyager bridge, plenty of rocks on the floor as it gets burned out and shot up a bit. So I'm glad to see that Starfleet still packing the bulkheads with loose rocks to get thrown around. That is important technology. It's tradition, mm -hmm. isn't it? It is, yeah. In Star Trek? Yeah. I really liked Anorax's keepsake, that plexiglass prop pyramid yeah. with his wife's ponytail inside yeah. of it. It It's a nice counterpoint to later on when Janeway finds Chakotay's watch. You have these two, yes. kind of like these icons that they're both fixated on when it comes to what am I doing right now? Why am I so bent on just this immovable position yeah. right that i have that's risking everything right agreed right. agreed really like the scene with chakotay and janeway with chakotay being the voice of reason and kind of going back to the dynamic with janeway that really works i think of course she is determined to stay and fight but this is a valuable discussion that w w it would have felt missing if we didn't get that in this episode so Good point in there. I wish he stuck to his guns maybe a little bit more instead of like relenting towards the end. Like, yeah, I wasn't really on board with that plan too, even though it was mine and I brought that up to you. Sure. It just softened, I think, a little bit of the drama. But one thing though that kind of raised the stakes a little bit more is when, you know, we saw Picardo, and this is Picardo at his best, is when he can just like shoot a glance, you know, towards the camera and you know exactly what's happening, the emotional stakes. And when the doctor had to make that choice. Yeah, about leaving the two crewmen behind. That was a powerful moment, even though that there were no words spoken. I thought that was, was fantastic. It's almost like he was working out the needs of the many versus the needs of the few or the yes. one. Yes, yes. In just a nuanced look. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I, I mentioned at the top of the segment, I mean, it's one of those things here where you have a lot of story to tell. 
and you have the room to do it with two episodes, but there is this economy of the storytelling within that. So it's maybe we really are getting the best of both worlds. Hey, oh. all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we almost have the Star Trek game here of three things when Balana and Harry are trapped in the elevator, where you get, you know, two items in the sequence that are real, and then you follow it up with an alien thing. We don't quite do that. They name one real thing and then one fake thing. So that that's fine, you know. Who knew that Harry was such a sports fanatic? I didn't know that. Did you know that? I didn't know that in Klingon sports yeah. in particular, but I appreciate that he's a Hitchcock fan, or at least a Cary Grant fan. And, it, exactly. you know, it, look, Harry Kim, don't do not do a Cary Grant imitation, please. It's not in his wheelhouse. No, it is not. For sure. It is not. I love seeing the evolution of the battle damage on Voyager yes. throughout the course of this episode. I thought that was really well done. Yes, absolutely agreed. Many great effects here, and that is right at the top of them. I thought that Seven of Nine's interruption was clever with the first contact trivia. Uh, And as I mentioned in our trivia, uh, that movie and this episode are about a year apart, so it would have had time Mm -hmm. to settle in with the audience. I do like the scene between the Doctor and Tom about being dispassionate during triage Mm -hmm. and obviously the, the emotional impact that the Doctor is suffering from seeing or having to choose to leave two crewmen behind. But why is there only one nurse assistant with the doctor at this time? Oh, and why is yeah. it Tom? And if it's not Tom, because he said, if you can't do the job, I'm going to find somebody who can. Shouldn't you have more than one nurse at this situation? Honestly, it should be everybody else on Voyager at this point. Literally, every, mm-hmm. you, even under the best of circumstances, you have 148 crew. They should all be trained. They, they just should. You think? Yeah. Yeah, from the yeah. captain on down, you know. And I have to wonder that scene, like, as everybody who listens to this show knows that I am an ocean liner fanatic, Voyager didn't already have discrete separable bulkheads, and it took revisiting 1912 technology to make that happen. I mean, come on, they're in space. <laughs> Titanic, at least, <laughs> you were planning only for a bottom-up problem. You were only planning for water that is going to flow in one direction. <laughs> but when you're in space, you should be planning that for the beginning. But all right, uh, you know, clever shout out to Titanic. Well, I guess the, the Krenim incursion, timeline incursion was just the tip of the iceberg, really. Nice. Nicely done. Thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Speaking of tips, mm-hmm. the Krenim torpedo, the, the tip that was punching through the Jeffries tube, I thought that was an amazingly good practical effect. Oh. It just it looked great. Yep. It felt like it was radiating the the chroniton radiation particles like into the Jeffries tube. I thought that was so yes, good. yes. And a, a fun bit with Seven. See, when you take these characters like Worf, Tuvok, Seven, sometimes Data. I, I think they played Data as comedy too much. But mm. when you have these characters that are serious and you give them an unintentionally funny line. Just seven saying, arrive quickly (laughs) to Tuvok. Delivered perfectly. I love it. I love when we get moments like that. Okay, uh, let's have a little word about replicators. I know that so many people in our audience are tired of hearing it. But isn't the energy expenditure the same whether you are creating or ripping apart a physical object? So go with me here. Chakotay made a pocket watch five months ago, right, or however long ago. Doesn't it take replicator energy to put it back in the replicator? 
unless, you know, again, it's just a big vat of goo behind the wall that it can be turned into anything. Like you turn it into a pocket watch, turn it into coffee, turn it into a hot banana, then maybe it makes sense. But we're talking about just transforming energy into matter takes a lot of energy to rip something apart at a subatomic scale. I guess the big question is, are the toilets offline? Oh, that is a very important question. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. you know, matter to not matter, back to matter, mm-hmm. and you turn them into potato chips. Yes. Right? There you go. It's all just matter and energy at the end of the day. I do love that Chakotay was growing out his goatee or his beard. I think that Robert looked really good with some facial hair. And also, it kind of gave us a little passage of time yeah. and obviously what's important to people, like shaving or not shaving. Yeah, agreed. I, I want to see that actually at a convention. I want to see somebody do that Chicote. Speaking of, do you have time to shave or not? Tuvok, he has got a space sink, which we called mm-hmm. out in the last episode, and he's got a space razor. Very cool. But actually, I mean, I guess it is a space razor. It kind of looks Klingon-esque to me. But, you know, the Vulcans have cool ancient objects, too. I like the design of the prop. Mm-hmm. I don't, yeah, I don't know if it like fits in the Vulcan culture. Yeah. But that begs the question, in the mirror universe, would Spock would have used the same or a different razor in order to preserve like the tightness of his goatee? Ooh, good call. Good call. Got to say, the way it was introduced here was really sweet and sympathetic, but I really love the interactions between Seven and Tuvok, and I hope we get more of that now that we're back in the real timeline again, because I thought what they set up here was really nice. And when we cut back over to Anorak's ship when he finally encounters Janeway, there's something about almost kind of like honest and, and honorable about the dispassion that he has in their encounter. Mm-hmm. Like, this is very matter of fact. I have no ill will against you. I really mean you no harm, but I have to continue and complete my mission. Yes. And you are part of that assignment. So sorry, not sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like we say, you know, the uh, the villain is the hero of his own story. And that that is mm-hmm. this guy. And more to come on that. You know, I mentioned the opening of the Astrometrics Lab was being pretty interesting, but actually putting it to use now, that was very cool and some great effects in there, some great graphics. When they're in there, though, Seven and Janeway are alerted to the arrival of Anorax's ship because Voyager shakes. Why? They're in space. Again, why Why would it shake? I don't get that. I mean, not to get too nerdy about it, but is, has it has anything to do with the state of flux that the ship is in, like being able to pump out temporal waves upon their arrival okay i'll give you that all right temporal waves that's the answer to everything that that are time Mm. crystals i don't know uh (laughs) and um talking about the effects again that hull plating flying off voyager very cool effect that was done so well and i love how you know launch all escape pods that is a great dramatic way to end the episode also known as save budget on extra cast members for the next episode. It was a really good maneuver. Very clever. It was another kind of nod to first contact, too. It was. You know, in that situation where they were going to basically say, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the course of time, Mm -hmm. quote unquote. So save yourselves and we'll go on and be the heroes because we're on the call sheet. Yes. (laughs) Right, right. right. I I love the direction. Uh, Now we've switched over from Alan Croker to Mike Vehar. And I thought Alan Croker did a great job directing part one 
there was something really kinetic about the opening of part two with this these really wide shots and the camera just moving around the bridge as the doctor is chasing Janeway. There's just a lot of room given to the actors, a lot of camera movement, and you can really tell from the different placement of the mics because the sound quality actually is different in these shots, but that's cool. It all works really well, feels very real. I thought that dinner scene on Anorax's ship, very reminiscent of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Also get used to me name-checking 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea (laughs) because there will be many more references to that, but also see any other scene with a bad guy trying to show off their sophistication. That happens in Bond movies. It happens in so many other places. And this was a nice nod to that. Played very well. Yeah, it's monologuing time mm-hmm. for sure. It sure is. You yeah. know, look at, welcome to my underground lair, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, when uh, Harry and uh, Captain Jane were trying to turn off that gas leak that was happening on the ship, they're wearing basically just futuristic oxygen masks. Right. And I know that the gas was actually, you know, harming them, even though they had oxygen masks on. Right. But if it's if it's strong enough to be able to burn lung tissue to the point where the doctor obviously has to intercede on Janeway's behalf, it's definitely strong enough to burn ocular tissue. Good point. Like the mucous membranes in your eyeballs. Yeah. How about that wear were some, exposed? Yeah, wear some goggles, guys. Come on. Interesting definition of senior staff on Voyager, because remember, Janeway gives the order, everybody else leaves except for the senior staff. So does that mean that Seven of Nine is enlisted now? Ooh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what about Neelix? Yeah. I know he's the ambassador, but like, <laughs> you know, it, it's everybody. Okay, but but also Seven of Nine and Neelix, you stick around. And by the way, aren't they on a three-shift rotation? Because it seems like there should be other senior officers as well. But you are really paying attention. I'm really paying attention. Sorry yeah. about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when the doctor kind of, when he snaps at Jane Way after she burns her lung tissue and says, it's your body. Who am I to judge? I'm only the chief medical officer. What do I know? That is peak OG doctor. Oh, it is. Right there. It is. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That felt so good. All right. Now, Tuvok, is the captain always right? Right. <laughs> Hasn't he disagreed with her before? Maybe. And, and honestly, Chicote's job is partly to disagree. So mm-hmm. I, I, I do wonder how that goes down in the real world. And maybe some of our listeners who are or were in the armed forces can tell us. But I, I do think that that is an important aspect of command. Leadership is being able to listen to other points of view and then make a make an informed command decision. What Seven of Nine arguably was out of line But I'm curious about the reaction then to Tuvok's reaction to that. Yeah, I think he's just responding to, and maybe this is like a symptom of his blindness because, you know, there are occasions where people that have lost their sight have enhanced other senses, Mm -hmm. like listening. And maybe he's like hearing more about Janeway's convictions than before. Yeah. Interesting so point. Maybe maybe that's it. Uh, a wonderful spread on Anorak's table. I, you know what? It was a wonderful spread, and they really made it look alien. First of all, they made it look mm-hmm. big. The, there was like a lot of attention paid to that instead of just like, here's a plate with some cut-up dragon fruit on it. No, no, no. The, this was big. It was opulent. You know what I want? I want that whiskey mm-hmm. bottle. Wait, right. uh-huh. that was nice. I thought about you when yeah. I saw that. That was all very yeah, that cool was- stuff. 
Yeah. Nice prop. Um, and Anorax, he's got, I, there are so many great lines of dialogue in this episode. You can't imagine the burden of memory that I carry. Mm. Of course, in the sci-fi context and what this character goes through, that is very specific to him and specific to the construct of the story. But I think just as a truth, as an emotional truth, I thought it was a lovely line, and it, it underlines the personal motivations and tragedies that are in his life. More great stuff to come, but I thought that was nice. By the way, uh, that whole thing with Janeway going down to uh, to turn on the manual deflector control, that would have been a great opportunity to send the doctor <laughs> to go do a dangerous mission let him activate mm -hmm. the the deflector control he's just photons so exactly he, yeah he could do that but yeah mm -hmm. you're wondering um if his 29th century emitter would be able to sustain itself during the fire would it melt would it be destroyed i'm gonna say what would i'm gonna say fire would not melt it but that, that's okay. just me yeah so in the transition scenes between uh, Acts 7 and 8, there's this really wonderful panoramic shot of Anorak's time ship. Now, for all of you other science fiction fans out there that watch other science fiction shows like Babylon 5, that ship may look very similar because, according to Memory Alpha, there are some Babylon 5 influences that affected the design work of this episode because some of the designers say Steve Berg designed the Species 8472 Bioship and the Krenim Weapon Ship, uh, and uh. he was also responsible for some of the design work in Babylon 5, especially when Foundation Imaging, when their contract ended with Babylon 5 Productions and then went over to work on Voyager. Fantastic. So, Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And, and just all really good looking here. And, and again, kicked up. It's been such a short time since we saw Species 8472 and look at how much more advanced even this looks. I, I thought the effects mm -hmm. just looked fantastic. All right, Chakotay says, give Catherine my best. Oh, really, Chakotay? We're back on a first-name basis with Janeway. Okay. All right. I see. He's, he's very, very forgiving. I mean, even after she kind of shunned his birthday gift, mm -hmm. you know, I think he's just like, you know what? Let's just put all that aside. I just want to make sure we can get back to our ship, that she's alive, everything's good. Yeah. And that we have no further uh, need to resolve any other resolutions that may be lingering. Yeah. I love the fade out on the penultimate act here because it, it builds drama without just hitting us with another cliffhanger. So I thought it was really nice to see Captain Janeway alone and completely facing her fate. I thought that was great. And I got to say, you know, overall in this episode, art department went way above and beyond with damaging Voyager's bridge. I mean, the whole ship, really. They, they do it everywhere, but especially in these final scenes as we count them down. So bravo. So many rocks. <laughs> um, great, <laughs> great look at the view screen. I, I like how we see the damaged view screen. Then we just see it knocked mm -hmm. away, but with that force field in front. Really cool stuff. I guess it can't not be said that this is maybe the biggest reset button in Star Trek history is the end of this episode. And there are many. And I know that Brandon takes a lot of uh, a lot of guff for that. But I will have more to say about that in the wrap up. Was Tom really being rude to his hosts? Or was he just in the mood for pepperoni pizza rather than a big spread? 
Norm, I'm going to ask you to kick us off with uh, some thoughts here. I feel like this is one of those episodes that on the surface feels like there's so much action. It's all about getting to the next day, getting to the next step, and who's going to outsmart whom. But because it's a two-parter, we have this breathing room also to absorb these character moments that I think are really worthy of discussion. So what do you got for me? I love the fact that we're focusing on how good Kurt Wood Smith is in this well, this two-part episode and these two episodes. I mean, he brings such a wonderful yeah. kind of like stage presence and nuance to the character. There's a line that you mentioned before in Observations where I think it's one of the most powerful lines, and I think it's so incredibly well acted, when Anorak says, you can't imagine the burden of memory that I carry. Thousands of worlds, mm-hmm. billions of lives, gone, brought back, gone again. I try to rationalize the loss. They're not really being destroyed because they never existed. Sometimes I can Mm. almost convince myself. Now, when you take Ah. the meaning behind that and how he's either convinced himself that he is the hero of his own story as villains are wont to do, the big question that I'd like to lead us off with and the audience, do you think that Anorax is a villain? Well, I think for the purposes of our story, he is the villain. Is he a villain, though? That's a really interesting question. Mm -hmm. I I think he is an unwitting villain. I think he is not somebody who planned to be a villain. There's so much to say about him. And and I think when we get into that last scene and we see him with his wife, that ultimately really humanizes him quite a bit. And you get to see who was this person before he made a terrible, terrible mistake. And that mistake was like, okay, he's not a politician starting a war. He's not the general leading thousands, millions of people into a battle that they don't want to fight. He's the guy who was the egghead coming up with a technology, presumably to end the war by giving his side an advantage. And then it went horribly wrong. And it got personal as well. And I I mentioned this in the pre-show before we started recording, but I am going to just very briefly drop it here as well, because it'll make it to air, that I feel like there is a huge parallel with Khan, but they are played in such completely different ways, where you have the bravado of Khan wanting power along with restoring his future, restoring his world. That was taken away from him. His wife was taken Mm -hmm. away from him. And he goes mad in the process, right? And just wants to exact revenge. Anorax isn't driven by revenge, but he's driven by the same kind of motivation that Khan was. His world is taken away from him. His wife is taken away from him. His future family is taken away from him. All of this is gone. And all of this makes him very relatable. It's so funny. I was watching the episode the first time and I blurted something out about oh, it's like Captain Nemo, right? I I, I said, like, Anorax is this very Nemo-style character. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, Tom Paris makes some offhand comment about, yeah, Captain Nemo in there. But it's perfect. It is a perfect parallel to a character like that as well, driven by obsession, also driven by a personal issue here in the book, Nemo's, uh, I believe it's his wife and his daughter, I think, are both gone. can't remember exactly. It's been a while since I read the book. But I also love that Nemo is driven to violence because he thinks that it will undo violence. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, that is one of the big messages in this episode, that that is not the case. 
But in Nemo's story and in Anorax's story, that's what they're doing. They think if we only take out enough warships, if I only take out this delivery of munitions and gunpowder going across the Pacific, that'll prevent somebody else, some innocent from being killed. And of course, Nemo rationalizes it and gets his crew to rationalize it. They keep exacting this terror campaign. It's what they're doing, you know. Let me draw another quick 20,000 Leagues parallel here, just because I can't <laughs> but help myself. <laughs> Thank you for indulging me. Um, Chakotay is Professor Aranax. Not Anorax. Aranax is the character in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And I can't help but connect those two names in my head about the inspiration for Anorax. Although Earl has pointed out that Anorak, uh, didn't he say that it was a name for nerd? It's a, 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 British, a, a slang. British slang for a nerd. Yeah. yeah. So that's very cool too. But I have to go 100% 20K here. And that is that uh, Chakotay is behaving like Professor Aranax. And that kind of makes Tom Paris our stand-in for Ned Land. If you saw the movie, that's the Kirk Douglas character, right? So Aranax is trying to understand Captain Nemo's motivations. Like, oh, but wait, but he, along the way, he's discovered all this great stuff. And what if he's right? Ned Land's like, no, 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 time for a mutiny. <laughs> Let's do this now. Um, and then, of course, that dinner scene, it, it really felt like that uh, when he says to Tom, you know, Anorax is an enlightened man just before Anorax blasts another civilization out of existence. So I thought all these parallels were great. I do think that you can take these parallels and put them on any other number of literary examples, but I'm a 20,000 Leagues fan, so that's immediately what comes to mind for me. Norman, I apologize. That is a very long way for me to answer your question, which is to say that I don't think that Anorax is, he is somebody who is engaged in villainous behavior. Mm -hmm. But, and yes, and there, there is a touch of madness about that. The madness is of his own making. I don't think he started out that way. He didn't start out with hatred. He didn't start out with vengeance. He started out trying to do the job but the job got away from him and now he's trapped and i think that what's that that's what makes a compelling victim oh sorry villain or both is somebody you know or both right? or yeah. but he might be a bit of a victim here too but what makes this a compelling villain is our ability to relate like you can't help but have that little bit of heartbreak for him when he is back there with his wife yeah the resolution at the on. end speaks volumes yeah. obviously it, it, it really does you need that scene mm -hmm. so that that is my long-winded answer to your question what do you think <laughs> you brought it <laughs> the up. question was sir this is a wendy's you know the answer <laughs> to the question yes i love it uh, so i'm glad that that you saw and i think a lot of probably people in the audience i sure felt the twenty thousand leagues under the the sea reference and i'm glad that because mm -hmm. that they lifted a lot of like inside jokes breaking the fourth wall and referencing first contact i'm glad they didn't go the yeah. ahab route with this because i don't think it was as comparative you know to that nemo story right but janeway also is similar to anorax in that respect and there's something that I wanted to bring up. It was a quote that she said that she would never say or a command that she would never give. And she said, 
I promised myself I would never give this order, that I would never break up this family, but asking you to stay would be asking you to die. Which raises for me two big questions throughout the course of not just the episode, but kind of like her motivations in total up to this point. One, how many crew members was Janeway willing to sacrifice in order to establish the temporal shields? Because Mm -hmm. if they never Mm -hmm. did, how many were expected to die in the process of that success? Two, how many are needed to survive in order to still call her crew a family? Because in the end of part one, Janeway finally relents and allows everyone but her command crew to abandon ship, the order that she said she would never give. But if she listened to Chakotay earlier, maybe more would have been alive to also abandon ship and increase their odds of survival. Okay. What you're doing here is brilliant because it lays out perfectly the parallel between Janeway and Anorax. Mm-hmm. For the purpose of this episode, Anorax, again, he is the villain, but we can question if he is a villain, if he is truly villainous at heart. For Janeway to make these types of decisions, who among her crew might see her as a villain, Miners might see her as somebody who is behaving in a villainous way because she can sacrifice crew members like pieces on a chessboard to get to a goal that is driving her. I love that we have had moments in the past where other crew members have had to question, should we just stop? Should we just stay here on the cool, technologically advanced planet with the ghosts of Amelia Earhart? Because we can, Mm -hmm. and because we'll all survive. Like, are we just going home because that's what you want? And that, as Anorax points out, is a nearly impossible goal. The odds are that none of the people on Voyager now will live to see that day, or at least very few of them will. So it is very easy to see that Janeway is maybe behaving out of line here, which is why you need Chakotay to call her out. Well, you had two other characters. You had, um, aside from Chakotay, you had Chakotay at first. Then you had the doctor, who was obviously diagnosing her with a very specific stress disorder. And then you have Seven, who, yes, you know, as the outsider, she sees things that no one else really sees at the time. And of course, Tuvok, you know, he kind of countermands that. And I'm going to get to that in a second, both figuratively and literally about blind loyalty. But one thing I do want to kind of segue into, and you set me up for this perfectly, John, Mm -hmm. Janeway and Anorax are two sides of the same coin because they are both unrelenting in their beliefs, but at what cost? That's the big question. Right. There are these two very parallel bookendy type of uh, interactions that both Anorax and uh, Janeway have with their executive officers. Anorax says early on in episode one, or the first part, no, not until every colony, every individual, every blade of grass is restored. Obrist says, you said yourself, our task will never be complete. Please, we should be satisfied with what we have accomplished. For 200 years, we have never come this close. Anorak says, not close enough. Now, on the other side of the equation, you have Chakotay walking into Janeway's ready room after, you know, several weeks of being bombarded by the Krenims. 
And Chakotay says, I'll be blunt. Our strategy is failing. It was a good idea to try and create temporal shielding, but it isn't working. And Janeway says, not yet, but it will. With every attack, we're getting more information about their chronoton weapons. And Chakotay asks her, how many more attacks will it take? Before long, there won't be a ship left to protect. And Janeway says, we don't have a choice. And Chakotay says, maybe we do. It's the same scene, (laughs) you know, but on opposite sides of the spectrum. I'm going to throw this out there partly to play devil's advocate, but partly because other people might be thinking this um, in our audience. I do think that the dynamic is very much the same. And I do think that putting the crew at risk is very much the same. Being driven by the singular goal, that's what runs parallel with Janeway and Anorax. I think there is one big part of the equation, though, that has to be factored in, and that is that Anorax's actions affect many, many millions, countless millions of people who cannot advocate for themselves. He is carrying out a course of genocide and when he doesn't get the you know the response the outcome that he wants he just goes back to the computer and figures out another way to do it and then another way and then another way and another way i will give jane way some leeway in the respect that in theory everyone on her ship with the exceptions of naomi wildman and uh, seven of nine to an extent you know because we had to get there with her these are all people who volunteered to be there. These are all people who signed up because they knew the risks of what setting foot on a starship would bring them. And part of the goal of that starship is to explore and hopefully leave that corner of the universe better than you found it, mm-hmm. <laughs> or at least not metal, you know. But now they're in this impossible situation where they have to interact. They have to do things that they hadn't planned on because the mission has changed. The mission is to get home. But at the same time, maintain the standards of Starfleet to get home. So it puts Janeway in a very unique situation, but driven the wrong way and without the counsel of good officers, as we see here, it could drive her to extremes that paint her very much like anoraks. Mm-hmm. And that goes into the blind loyalty issue that, you know, we were discussing about Tuvok Mm -hmm. because Tuvok, you know, he said this to Seven when he was being brought back to his quarters. You know, he said, remember this guideline. The captain is always right. And then Seven says, even when you know her logic is flawed and Tuvok says, perhaps. So does that mean she is always right or does he (laughs) is he discounting his own? instincts and logic where that is concerned because he has put Janeway on a pedestal of leadership because she is the captain, you know, and logically as a Vulcan would serve, the captain has the best interests of her crew at heart until they don't. There's a lot of ways to look at that. And and yeah, I think that Tuvok knows Janeway well, and he also knows the org chart very well. So yeah, I, I think he can see all the instances where, well, you do go along with your captain because ultimately the captain is thinking, you know, three steps ahead, five steps ahead to all the pieces that maybe you're not aware of in your role. I, that That's all fine. A- absolutely. At the same time, and maybe it just wouldn't have worked in an episode like this, 
I feel like you're kind of missing a scene where it's Janeway at the big table with all of the senior officers mm-hmm. to say, what are our options? That's a very Picard thing. And we only get that a few times in Voyager, but when we get it. I feel like mostly those are pretty valuable, except when they're making fun of Neelix. <laughs> um, but, you know, but, but you kind of need that where you've got Janeway saying, what are my options? And I guess... For Tuvok and for others, it's just understood that unless she says, what are my options, then voicing that is not welcome. Unless you're Chakotay and you feel like you can go bend her ear when you can. But that's uh, it's a weird dynamic with this show. Because remember, Chakotay was the new guy. But then Janeway and Chakotay had a moment of intimacy, which drew them closer together. Mm. I think I'm more interested in the idea that Chakotay and Tuvok had a friendship much, much longer than before they set foot on Voyager. And that's really the the wise counsel that I want to hear more of. Red alert probably means something completely different on the Krenim ship. It means Anorax is about to put his foot up your timeline. So here we are at the end of... Year of Hell Parts 1 and 2. Uh, we have made all of our temporal incursions quite at length uh, through all of the different segments of this particular episode because there's a lot to talk about. There are so many things and probably so many more threads that you can pull that even, even Anorax probably didn't even anticipate. <laughs> but we have to wrap it up. We have to figure out, does the episode hold up? Does it stand the test of time? Or should I say the episodes because it's a two-part episode. And did we find any morals, meanings, or messages at the end of these two episodes? One singular story. So here we are with John Champion, and he has fired off his last chronoton particle torpedo to see where the timeline takes us. Look, I'm not going to mince words. Um, This works on pretty much every level. It is tightly produced. It is epic in scale. The performances are great. And I think you get that terrific parallel match of a high action story, but with really good character drama. And if not a, if not necessarily the, the old Star Trek, you know, you see Timmy message baked in, I think some really compelling ideas to chew on. This episode would have worked as a season ending cliffhanger. But I'm actually, you know, I mentioned that they had kicked around the idea of doing this as a year-long arc or a season-long arc. I'm glad they didn't do that. I think you need to wrap this up. And I think the impact is best served by having these two back-to-back episodes. Production value, very high. Action is high. Like I mentioned, great character moments. We're really pushing Janeway here again. And if you want to hear Norm's VAM about that, well, you should join us on Patreon. You can hear the whole thing. Because a lot of those questions or a lot of those choices may be questionable. But I think that's a good thing as well, because we can sit here and argue those choices. But what I respect is that the characters own up to those choices. And we can see the logic. We can also see the emotion in those choices. And then we as viewers get to debate them. (laughs) Um, Hats off to the guest cast here. It is tough to pull up a show that feels so epic again 
with only a, a handful of guest roles, but they do that. They, they really do. I mean, you think about a, a, an epic show like this has to have this huge cast and has to have just constantly hit you in the face, but it really doesn't. Kurtwood Smith, he just owns it, and he just delivers this great, real performance in all of this very high-concept sci-fi setting. And look, just as a story, it scratches a lot of sci-fi itches for me, you know, especially in the context of Star Trek. I love a nuanced villain. I love that we get this new take on a powerful weapon. We get a new take on alternate timelines that I feel like Star Trek sometimes just does to death. And we get to see our characters push to new limits. And then we hit the big fat reset button, which... I hate. Normally. (laughs) But I watched this episode a number of times. And I think we're going to change my tune about the reset button, at least in this one. I think it works. And I, I, I think it's necessary, actually. Because the whole story is based around the idea of the reset. The whole story is based around the idea that you can't change history. You can't mold things to be the way that you want them to be. So there's really only one out. There's only one way to wrap this thing up, and that is destroying the machine that tries to make that happen, that will only fall into the wrong hands, that will only be used even if Anorax isn't necessarily a villain by nature. This machine will only be used by people who ultimately will put it to a villainous cause. So I think you have to reset this thing at the end. Might have been cool, might have been interesting to see Voyager all beat to hell, carrying on for the next three and a half years, but I want that to come from something else. I I think this story needs to just be wrapped up the way it is, and we let the reset be part of the message here, not just part of the story. What about you, Norman? What you think? I like that last observation of yours because there's uh, something very future's end about that, mm-hmm. you know, where the technology from the 29th century had to be destroyed in order for them to reset the timeline yeah. Yeah. and lose their opportunity to be able to get home again, which is kind of like yeah. this. I, I agree with a lot with what you say. And uh, as you said before, during the course of several other podcasts of ours that we don't read each other's mm-hmm. notes. So I'm going to take a different angle on this because for me, this two-parter felt more like a proof of concept Mm. for a serialized season-long story. Oh, interesting. There's something really solid in the idea of this. I just think, for me, my tastes, I think it just needed more development. I think there's a a lot lost between the jumps between days and weeks and months, you know, but... I think we lose a lot of like the nuanced character development and the gradual changes that happen from episode to episode. And I think that that would have made it more interesting to watch. Now, I think that the, the visuals are amazing. You know, we have seen like basically a quantum leap of how good the quality of the effects are mm-hmm. now, which I think is going to help with a lot of future, uh, future episodes that we yeah. see. And the performances are great. You know, the effects are great. But I think that what we're losing here is that slow and steady decline into the gritty and grim and bleak hopelessness that would progress from episode to episode to episode. I think that that's where, say, 
Ron Moore's Battlestar Galactica found a lot of success because you really felt the scars, you know, from one episode to the other linger and continue, not just physically, say, on the ship, but on the people as mm-hmm. well. You know, the, uh, the, the stress disorders that people were suffering over the course of time. And I think that a serialized year of this story, of this particular narrative, would have really leaned into that uh, and definitely would have leaned into the mm-hmm. title, Year mm-hmm. of Hell. So I just didn't really feel that because of the time jumps that we were feeling that the breaking down of Voyager as a ship and Voyager as a crew, and of course, Janeway's style as a captain, I wanted more dramatic power to be earned in those moments. And I think that that's what you have to have from episode to episode. I think that, yes, we had dramatic moments, but like say the first crew member's death was literally walked over. Yeah. And we didn't feel that. And if we felt that at that instant, then the sacrifices that the crew and Janeway had to make during the course of a year, you would have felt a lot of those alliances just make a lot more emotional sense, like Seven and Tuvok becoming closer, Harry and Bellana becoming closer, the Doctor and Janeway becoming closer. Then all of those moments, either of betrayal or loss or sacrifice, you know, or coming together or closeness. I felt would have been stronger. And that's what I really want to see. And I just feel like it's becoming a little bit more typical 90s science fiction Star Trek in this case, where a lot of the drama is is very surface level and not very deep. Mm -hmm. And this story had the potential of really going far deeper into the emotional catharsis of these characters than was being shown. So I, I think that, again, it was a great idea but because of a fan of certain other science fiction shows that really capitalized on serialization, I think that this would have been very unique for Star Trek at the time. And Deep Space Nine did it so well in seasons four through seven, you know, with the Dominion War. But maybe that's why they didn't do this in this case, because they already had the Dominion War starting in parallel time with Voyager at this stage in season four. Interesting. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So, All right. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I mentioned that this may not be one of those episodes where you take away a uh, you see Timmy moment style message. And not all of Star Trek has to have that. But I think, to me at least, there are some interesting ideas here that we get to explore through our characters. And most significantly, that character being Anorax. I think the way he is played is very important to the way this story is told. Because this bad guy, at least, can't just be a mustache-twirling villain if you want them to be really effective. Um, and I think Anorax is very effective. They, they built in personal motivation, which is smart. And I think what lies at the heart of him is the tragedy of loss. And we can all relate to that. Now, hopefully the part that we can't relate to is the obsessive drive that would force someone to be stuck in that past and to ignore other people's needs in this sort of attempt, ill-fated always, attempt to fix, and that's in big finger quotes, fix the past, to atone for a mistake. Those are traps. Those are emotional, mental traps that people fall into. At one point when Anorex and Chakotay are arguing with each other, he says, I'm altering history on a massive scale. The destinies of countless star systems are in my hands. The fate of one species is insignificant. All right, so let's try to make this a little bit 
more personal because none of us, as far as I know, are actually altering history on a massive scale, <laughs> not with any mechanical means anyway. But it's an interesting thought. It's an interesting reminder that we have to keep our perspectives in check a little bit. You know, one life could alter history. One moment could make a difference. And everyone has value, as Chakotay points out. You're trying to rationalize genocide. One species is significant. And no, uh, building the bigger weapon, carrying out just one more mission won't make it all better. Anorax should have quit while he was ahead. He should have quit before he started. And nobody with a doomsday device can be trusted. And part of Anorax's problem here is maybe part of the lesson if we try to access this on more human, more personal terms. The part of loss is letting go and not living in the past. What about you, Norm? I'm very much on the same page with you here because I love Star Trek episodes where they make you ask more questions than you have answers for. Mm -hmm. And the, the big question is here for me is like, if you control the outcome of time itself, when does the manipulation end? <laughs> right? Right. Right. So, and since Anorax ordered the destruction of so many species based on resetting the Krenim timeline and the Krenim evolution, he also wields the power of creation itself for all intents and purposes, mm -hmm. wiping out potential futures of so many lives because in some way, just one of those lives could have influenced the time stream, which would influence the future death of his wife. So this is the conundrum here. Unless 100% of his mission is achieved so he can return to his wife, mm -hmm. then Anorax will always be sitting on this high throne like the gods of Olympus, like mm -hmm. Zeus. With his crew, his pantheon of lesser gods, casting their will upon millions or billions of unsuspecting moral lives until perfection is achieved. Oh, that, that's you know that's so. Sorry to interrupt, but you know mm -hmm. that is something about the corruptive nature of power as we look at it in literature and history and discuss this idea is that once somebody has the power, they don't give it back. Typically, it's not right. like well, I'm just going to use the power for a moment. And when we get to that point, okay, then then we'll be fine. Then I can just step away. And maybe that is the spoken ideal, but I can't think of any example where it's an actual thing that happens. But if Anorax actually achieves his mission, even if he had a 100% restoration mm -hmm. rate, because they got to 98%, then what? Right? right? Because will that ever be the end of the mission? He said this to Obrist. If I told you to count the stars in the cosmos, would the task ever be complete? And Oberst replies, sir? And Anorak says, our attempts may be sufficient. They may even be relatively successful, but they will never be complete. Choose your words with more precision. So even though this episode aired on November 5th, 1997, and Star Trek Generations was released almost three years earlier on November 17th, 1994, mm -hmm. I've always felt that Anorax's story reminded me a lot of Dr. Tolian Soren's story. Because like Anorax, he literally destroyed whole civilizations and wiped out billions of lives and annihilated entire planets and stars in order to push the Nexus to Viridian 3 so that he could be with his wife and his children mm -hmm. again. Yeah. So in regards to Anorax, do we believe, as he said to Obris, that time is patient, so we must be patient? Or because of what Anorax has done to fulfill his mission, and as Soren said to Picard and how it relates to Anorax's mission of restoring his wife, is time the fire in which we burn? 
In my opinion, what this episode presents us with is probably one of the greatest unanswerable questions. If you command the power over time itself, then what power would be able to influence you to stop abusing this power, knowing that achieving perfection is just another justification of abusing that very power? Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com, and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Random Thoughts. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Schaubel, Paul Shadwell, and David Takechi. So did any of this ever happen, or do we strike that and reverse it? transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.